Well, let's open the scriptures together. We are in the midst of our study of First Peter. We're in the third chapter. And today, I want to read verse 8, which ought to tell you we're not going to get a long way. But we are going to look at verse 8 together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you're a God who has spoken. That we have propositional revelation to turn to to find truth. And in your mercy, you not only have spoken, but you've superintended what you've said to make it available to us. In the time that we have together, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be illumining our hearts as we read what you've spoken from eternity. That we would understand its implications in our lives. Lord, carry out that teaching ministry. You tell us that the Word of God is so useful to us to teach us, to train us, to, at times, rebuke us, correct us. So, we know being in your Word can be both an encouragement and a challenge, so take us in this time and accomplish those ends, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Peter, starting at the end of the first chapter, and particularly throughout the second chapter, and now into the very beginning portions of the third chapter, we've been learning details about how God wants us to live, as the ESV translates it, sojourners and exiles. Uh, The NIV uses the word alien. Uh, King James Version, especially the older forms of it, use the word pilgrim. Uh, What does it mean? having been redeemed and made part of a different kingdom altogether, so that no matter where we are, we are actually aliens there, we are exiles there, we are sojourners. What does it mean to live pleasing to the Lord in the context of a land no longer ours? Now, I don't mean by that that God doesn't give us additional responsibilities, no matter where he's placed us, to be submissive to leadership, praying for its well-being and all of that, of course. But nonetheless, uh, we actually belong in a different place. Our citizenship has changed in the clearest sense of the word to citizenship from heaven. And we've been seeing some of these uh, places where this is what God wants us to do is a sojourner exile. I've been talking about them in terms of countercultural uh, orientations, being a countercultural light in the midst of the darkness of the world in the Romans 12 sense, uh, to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We've seen seven highlighted countercultural contrasts throughout the latter part of the second chapter and into the third part. The seventh, which we were looking at over the last four weeks, had been the issue of verses 1 to 7 of the third chapter, countercultural marriage, biblical marriage, and how God wants us to live in the framework as lights in the darkness. And understand a biblical marriage will always be a light in the darkness because it will always in differing ways run abrasive to the prevailing views of the world. By the way, in keeping with that, uh, a comment, uh, Reynolds Showers has this booklet called Lawfully 
uh, Wedded, a, a great booklet over here on the thing. If you pick, want to pick one of those up, they're made available to us. Thanks, Tim, for uh, getting some for us. Uh, to underscore that uh, God has specific things to say about the nature of marriage and the propriety of relationships. So make sure you're looking at that. Now today, as we get into verse 8, God turns our attention to an eighth and final countercultural issue. Uh, He even uses the word finally here, and obviously he's not meaning finally like it's the end of the book. There's a lot more to come. But finally, in the sense that issues related to light in the darkness, countercultural orientation and lifestyle, he's finishing that particular theme. And the eighth countercultural issue that he's talking about is actually how he wants the church to be. The church, in God's plan, is meant to be a countercultural entity. It is meant to look dramatically different than anything else. That exists in a fallen world. That's his great intention. And specifically in verse 8, he highlights five characteristics of the countercultural church. Five characteristics that have to do with the issue of how we respond to one another, how we carry out relationships and friendships within the framework of the church. A countercultural church is going to stand out like a sore thumb in the midst of a fallen world. A countercultural church, if we understand and begin to implement the kinds of things that verse 8 are talking to us about, will always make the world around us scratch their head because they can't quite figure it out. One of the great griefs of my life, by the way, over the years, uh, been in ministry since I was 21, and you add up and know I'm 74 now, you know, it's a lot of years. But one of, the, one of the great griefs is that, by and large, the lost around us have no trouble figuring out the church. Because the church they know is seldom a biblical one, and certainly seldom a countercultural one. And they very much can relate to the dynamics that uh, either neutralize or self-destruct uh, churches. Would that it could be different, so that every once in a while they encounter something that matches up to their experience, and they say, oh, yeah, well, we know how what's going on there. Instead of almost all the time seeing something, say, we don't know what's going on, we don't know why they deal with each other this way, it just perplexes us. How, how is this? May there be more perplexity in the fallen world in which God has left us, uh, and it relates to churches. How we relate to one another is part of the gospel witness in a fallen world. Francis Schaeffer, the great theologian and and apologist, back in the early 70s, actually 74 to be exact, had written a pamphlet, and that's almost a demeaning way to describe it because it was a very significant piece of writing. And he called it uh, Two Contents and Two Realities. It was a synopsis of of an address he had delivered to the 1974 World Congress on Evangelism in Luzon. And what he was, his point in it was to say the gospel, as it's proclaimed within the world, has two contents to it. A content having to do with individual salvation, but also a content having to do with the fact that once saved, we've been adopted into a family and God has placed us into a place, part of the body of Christ. And therefore, there's a corporate transforming dimension 
as well as an individual transforming dimension. So those are the content issues. A lot more to it than that, but that's a quick summary. Uh, he'd probably shake his head and say, Gary, it's typical. You've oversimplified what I've said. But that's what he said. And, and he said there's two realities, therefore, that have to be seen in order for the gospel to have its proper light in the darkness of a fallen world. There needs to be the reality of individuals transformed as individuals, born anew. New creations in the Second Corinthians 5.17 sense. So that their life becomes perplexing to the world because clearly they have changed. Not just a new belief system, but something has changed who they are. They are actually different people than they were before. Uh, and he said, but there also has to be that other reality in order for the full light to be demonstrated in a community. And that is, there has to be a transformation not just head knowledge, but a true transformation in the way these redeemed people interact with each other. So you see, two contents, two realities, they're all part of impacting in the world in which we find ourselves. Well, verse 8 is introducing us to what that corporate reality is supposed to be. How, how are we to be different, countercultural, in the way that we interact with one another. Essentially, verse 8 of chapter 3 is all about the Greek word koinonia, koinonios, which is translated by the word friendship, fellowship, partnership, depends on the context of the passage that uh, we encounter it. But generally, it means fellowship in the English. But, of course, fellowship in the English is a very flat sort of word. Uh, It doesn't have anywhere near the richness of koinonia, because koinonia literally means a joint participation in the necessities of life. And that's a very packed word, if you think about it, because it's more than just being friendly with people. It's being vested with people. That's why the Greeks tended to use the word koinonia to describe marriage, and the scripture does too, uh, because it has applications beyond marriage, but marriage is meant to be not just two people that have committed themselves in some way together, but they're jointly participating in the necessities of life. They are vested in one another. Well, he says, listen, this is about vesting in one another's lives. And these are commands addressed to all of you. And I point that out, uh, not just because I'm grammar police here, but I point it out because... God's taken away any option for you if you're determined to be obedient to the Lord. It's not like, well, this is applying to many of you, but I know you have extenuating circumstances where this won't apply. God says, whoop, all the extenuating circumstances are gone. This applies to everybody. This is applying to all of the settings. And by the way, I say everybody. I'm talking redeemed here. This portion of the word of God is addressing the redeemed, not the unredeemed. He gives us five marks of a countercultural church. Very helpful checklist, really, or convicting checklist, as the case might be. Uh, and I, as we're looking at them together, I challenge you to be thinking, all right, how are we doing on these things? Uh, you know, how are we doing on checkpoint one and checkpoint two? Uh, begins by saying, finally, all of you. Have a unity of mind in a sojourner exile church. God's plan 
is that we would be able to demonstrate and show a unity of mind. Humathron is the Greek word here. It means to be like-minded, single-minded. It's a, it's a picture of individuals who are united in their thoughts and goals. It's not a picture of clones. It doesn't mean that there can't be some diversity within it. But within the framework of diversity, there's still a clear united direction, a clear sense this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is where God is directing us and going. He says, this is what is meant to characterize the countercultural church. Uh, as a church family, do our minds kind of run in the same general direction? Romans 14 makes it plain there can be some diversity within a group of people. But even within that diversity, which the weak and the strong and grace and love have to work on, there's nonetheless a same directedness to it. Moving in the same direction. He says, that's what I want the countercultural church to be demonstrating. How I want the world around you to look at it and see that that church is made up of Jew and Greek, slave and free, rich and poor, <laughs> male, female, all the things that would normally divide and disintegrate any kind of human group. Uh, I want to see all of those things uh, not doing that and at the same time demonstrating a unitedness, a sense of, yes, homophron. They're, they're, their heads work the same. They're moving. They're moving in the same directions. By the way, I find it sad uh, and have been part of churches where homethron might show up on a, on, a, on a plaque somewhere that sure didn't show up in the relationships of the people. I mean, <laughs> that was, uh, you know, like wishful thinking because it wasn't the reality of their lives. Uh, sadly, in our world, that's not what the church is generally noted by. In fact, increasingly in our world, the churches that are seen to be the in-churches are more like people gathering for a rock concert than they are people gathering to build deeper family relationships with one another. You know, what's driving it? And uh, uh, Well, this unity of mind, homethron, takes three things really to be achieved. Number one, it takes time. No one gets this particular Greek word, unity of mind, because they went to a class, and, then the cla and in the class they said, well, yeah, okay, we're all for that, and then all of a sudden they've got it. It, it. it takes time to develop unity of mind. Or, conversely, to discover there is no unity of mind. I mean, both can happen. I mean, you can discover that, and then you have to say, what can I do to try to foster this, or is it impossible to foster this within the given context that I'm in? Uh, so first of all, it takes time. No overnight answer. Uh, it isn't changing the logo of the church or uh, you know, having, having a mutual uh, you know, phrase that we use as a church that makes you have homophron. <laughs> it, it, it's more than that. It takes time. Secondly, homophron never comes about apart from the objective study of God's word. A human being can never come up with it, no matter how much psychology orientation they try to give it. That, that will never produce it. We need something that's coming from the creator God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that can pierce deeper than any human ideas can, and can transform us 
at the deepest level. And isn't it wonderful, as First Thessalonians 2 uh, puts it, that uh, verse 13, that the word of God works in us. <laughs> it, it can do that. There's no way to get there except by the word. Or as a friend of mine used to put it, it's propositional revelation, not programs. Well, yep. I can never forget that challenge. I wasn't about to tell him about any programs I ran. I just, you know, I was on the same page. That's where it's at. Propositional revelation. We need something living and active, sharpening a two-edged sword. It's not going to come any place other than the Word. A group has to let the Word transform them. It has to has to let them begin to discover what God wants, not us. And therefore, whatever homophron emerges is built on truth, not on the idea that we have harmony at any cost. Harmony at any cost is like a betrayal of homophron because it's a human-produced kind of thing. Now, sadly, many in the context of the broader uh, Christianity talk about unity at any cost, as if there was some particular value in unity. Uh, There's only value in unity at a biblical foundation and at a scriptural transformation foundation. Uh, Or God wouldn't be challenging us to not even invite somebody into our home if they're proclaiming a message different than the truth. So it isn't unity at any cost. It not only takes an objective study of the scriptures, personally and in a teaching church, but it takes obedience to what you're learning. You know, as, as James 1 so aptly puts it, under direction from the Lord, you know, I want you to be doers, not merely hearers, because you could hear it, even believe it, and if you don't do it, you'll forget what you saw in the mirror. That's the reality of it, uh, aligning with it. So, that's where you start. He says, what I intended the church to be as light in the darkness is a place where there is a unity of mind. People's minds are moving in the same direction. Not clones, but generally, we're all in the same, we're all after the same sort of things. Secondly, he says, I want all of you to have sympathy, is the way the ESV translates it. Uh, I want you all to have sympathy. The Sojourner Exile Church is a place where sympathy for one another is being shown. Uh, the word symphony, uh, sympathy translates the Greek word sympatheo, which ought to let you know that that particular English word actually has a Greek root, <laughs> transliterates into English. Uh, it means literally to suffer together. Interesting, isn't it? To suffer together. To feel empathy means to sense and feel the hurts and joys of others. I mean, to let yourself be so that you are engaged with it and, it and it influences you and affects you. I think it's very much like Romans 12, 15, where it says that God wants us to be rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. I mean, that's sympathio. That is sympathy. But are we willing to actually be part of a church marked by weeping and rejoicing together. Because uh, that's not an easy place to be always. Uh, You want to be with people who are hurting sometimes? Uh, In the world that we're involved in, uh, the world tries to get out of being around such things. Uh, But God says, you know, there's going to be times when people are hurting. 
and I want my family that I'm building, this countercultural thing, to be a place where they can hurt in the open, not in private. What a remarkable transformation that would be. Uh, are we willing to do that? Uh, generally, people tend to avoid hurting people because it ma- they make us feel awkward or they make us feel sad or hopeless or helpless or whatever. We, much nicer if you just, if you're hurting, just keep it to yourself. You know, let God work it out in you. In fact, and I've spoken on this at pastor's conferences, the culture around us is set up so that the church, not instead of being different from the culture, buys into the culture. The church around us has allowed an idea to creep in that, boy, you don't want to have any hurting people around because the message you're trying to do to interest people who really aren't interested in forgiveness, repentance, and faith, but are interested in feeling good, you're trying to communicate to that world, well, Jesus makes us feel good. And if you say that's what your message is to trick people into being around, how do you explain to them that there's people who don't feel good at the moment who say they know Christ? You see the dilemma? You're forced into it. Of course, the easy answer to that dilemma is stop being a misrepresenter of the word. You don't need to twist it to attract people. An open statement of the truth is what you do and then trust the working of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word. Well, at any rate... Getting this developed in a group is pretty remarkable, really. We must accept the fact also that no sympatheo develops in a group of people apart from deepening relationships with people. This is not simply a matter of, you know, I I find that I'm I'm an empathy person, so I kind of relate when I see suffering. Uh, It's more than that. Sympatheo emerges because you have deepening relationships. You had to make a choice to actually get close enough to somebody that you could weep with them if they were weeping. Not just weep because they are weeping, but weep with them in what they're weeping about. You care enough about them. You see the difference? And that's an important difference. And God says, listen, this sympatheo requires something of that sort. It can't happen because people simply attend somewhere. They must make a commitment to relationally invest in the people that they are going with. And that's a commitment you've got to make. You can attend somewhere for a long time and never relationally invest in the people. Sadly. Sadly. Or you can be going somewhere where they don't even encourage you to relationally invest in anybody. You know, could, that could also be even sadder. But as remember, I said koinonia is defined as a joint participation in the necessities of life. That's an investment in facing life with people. Now, since this is true, and I believe it is, we also have to face realistically the fact that there are limits to the number of people that you can relationally invest in. Uh, there's, there's clearly a point where family ceases and organizational fan becomes the replacement. You know, like, well, I'm a Steelers fan. You know, I have this connecting point because we're Steelers fans. I'm not really a Steelers fan. I'm not an enemy either. Just, I'm just using it as an example. People's church become that way. I mean, 
oh, I'm a fan of whatever. You know, that's, that's where I'm going because I'm, I'm the fan. Not because it's family, but that's what they like. So that's where they're at. Do you see that difference? And God says, listen, that's, that's not... To have koinonia, it hap- koinonia happens in families, not organizations. In my university work over the years, as I was working with doctoral students and teaching uh, educational philosophy and theory and so forth, uh, one of the things we'd talk about is the research that's done on what was summarized under a heading called Dunbar's number. Now, what's that about? Well, social theorists and researchers, just because sometimes they can be wise about things that the church buries its head in the sand about, they look at life and they say, well, listen, individuals can only maintain close and stable relationships with a certain number of people. They can't, they can't have it more than that. That's, those are the limitations. That doesn't mean you can't be nice to people. It just means you can't have relationship with people. There are restrictions to it. And among the researchers over time who were investigating that, there was no agreement on exact numbers per se, but ranges began to emerge. Let me share with you some of those ranges. Uh, this, isn't a, this isn't like, oh, I, I found this in, in Psalm 3. That's, that's not what this is about, right? But still, it's, it's related to this question of how many people can you have koinonia with? How many people can you really relate to? Uh, and they said, well, here are some of the ranges. If, if we're talking about nuclear family, meaningfully interacting nuclear family, it's somewhere 6 to 12, 6 you know, most people aren't having 10 kids nowadays, but some, some do. So that's sort of, you get much bigger than that, and, and life pulls everybody in different directions. You don't quite have the same, quote, family. So they're saying 6 to 12, somewhere in that range with nuclear family. And then when it comes to people that would really truly be close friends, people you'd have enough awareness of, that you could really see that you're close with each other. and doesn't mean you have to see them every day or, you know, even every week necessarily, but they're your close group. That number varies from somewhere around 45 to 50 up to around 75, maybe a little bit bigger than that. And the social scientists studying it say, we find no way mapping out relationships that it's possible to have more than that and still call them close friends. And again, you're not, we're not talking about whether you can be friendly with somebody. It's like, are they friends? Close friends. Uh, somewhere in that range. And then they, they get a third category. And that's the category, they give it different names, but essentially it means, who, how many can you have a meaningful awareness of? Not just an awareness, but a meaningful awareness. Like, you see something happening, you know who that is, you know something about them, so that what's happening in their life you can make sense out of. Do you follow that distinction? And they say, well, what's that number? Almost all of them agree 150 is as large as that can get. You can't go higher than that. Now, there's, individuals differ on their degree of extrovertedness, introvertedness, and all of that. So there's, understand there's, there's balances in all of this. But uh, by definition, koinonia, koinonios, uh, requires meaningful joint participation in life. So I'm suggesting to you, 
you can't really have koinonia with anybody beyond what that upper limit is. How do you have it? You can have awareness, but you can't. how do you have any kind of sense of meaningful interaction once you get above that? Uh, it's interesting to me uh, also that uh, according to re- studies that have been done, the average church building in the United States holds between a maximum of somewhere between 150 and 200. Now, why do you suppose that is? Oh, because they don't have any vision. Uh, Possibly, but probably not. Or they haven't fallen prey of vision they shouldn't have had in the first place. Uh, Why? Because intuitively, people understand that there's only so many that you can have in a meaningful relationship together. I, from the big early in my ministry, both speaking in seminaries and in, and in conferences, have said, listen, the ministry goal of a church should be growth, but not growth of that church. Growth of churches. You ought to be planting multiple bodies is a goal, all of which fit within those kinds of restrictions. Not... Uh, not mega bodies. Not mega bodies. Because the mega body automatically pushes you out of the true ability to have koinonia. Unless you've got the group so broken down into smaller chunks that within those smaller chunks, they've got sort of koinonia within the chunks. But then my recommend, my comment to that is, well then, why did you break them down? Why not have ten different churches then? where everybody has a chance to be meaningfully aware of one another. It's not a question of whether we want to grow, but it's how do we want to grow. And I see, by the way, that's the core problem with the megachurch mentality, which just so infatuates people. Uh, I have no trouble with evangelism and growth. I've been doing that from early in my ministry, years ago with Campus Crusade for Christ and onward. Uh, I'm all about evangelism, all about about discipleship and growing. The issue here is the church. What does God want a church? A church, not not theologically the church, which of course is that universal uh, connection of all who have been redeemed, but how does he want a church to be? And I'm saying these very things in verse 8 here of the third chapter, how do you do that meaningfully in the context of something too big? I, I don't see how it can be done, quite frankly. Uh, I can give that kind of advice if I'm talking about something other than the church. And I have, as I've done consulting over the years with groups like Sony and uh, General Electric and other groups and also government agencies, uh, I, I can very free to call their attention to things they don't want attention called to. And there's a certain degree of teachability that emerged in that. I find next to no teachability within the church. People don't want something called into question. Why? Because they become so vested in it. What do you do if you went through some major things and siphoned off massive amounts of money to create a situation where now you can seat 400, but now you no longer have the church that you wanted to have because now you have 400 in it, or 1,000, or seating capacity for 2,000, or whatever. I mean, because then in order to change gears... It's like you got to all come and say, boy, did we, we, we kind of messed up here. This, is, this was, wasn't really the answer. That kind of humility is very difficult to come up with. 
well, we can't avoid what he says here. I want sympatheo to be the characteristic. So the question is always going to be, how do you get sympatheo if you don't have a body that's within reason to have meaningful relationship with? Then it just becomes so many words. Then he moves on. He says, listen, I want you to have sympathy, but also I want all of you to have brotherly love. Uh, the Greek, it translates the Greek word, a form of Greek word, philadophios, which means brotherly love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But more importantly, it means family affection. That's what it primarily had meaning for the Greek mind about. He says, listen, I, I want my church to be a place where people have family affection for each other. It's as if they're family. That's, that's what we're about. Uh, that is like the dominating sort of thing I want to see there. I want people to treat each other. I want the church to be seen as more of a family than an organization. Here's the dilemma. You can't really feel family affection if you're not a family. This isn't a brain game. This, uh, this, this is something that's supposed to come out of other things. If you're not building as a family, how do you have family affection? You might want it, but how do you have it? You've got to have it out of relationships, you see. God intends the church, therefore, to be an extended family. That's basically in an alienated world where many who come to know Christ find parents and children turn against them, brothers and sisters. <laughs> you've got to have a family. Uh, you've got to have a family. And the church is supposed to be that for the redeemed. A place to find family unit in an alienated world. Pretty consistent theme. But, as I said, there's no family affection if there's no relationship development. You don't get family affection because you join something. You don't get family affection because you attend services. You get family affection because you vest in the people. So that you start to be family. That starts to make you feel family. A family emerges as people spend time together and face life together. In fact, if you spend time together and face life together, even if you didn't know that was supposed to make you feel like a family, you'd end up feeling like a family. Because that's what causes it. You've got to be involved with people. One of the theologians put it this way. The believer is called upon... To choose to adopt people into their affections. And I like the way that was phrased. Because that's a, that, that, that involves some movement within us to say, yes, I will enlarge that boundary of affection and circle. I will enlarge that sense of interpersonal responsibility. I will, I will not just do something to provide a meal for somebody that's on the street, but I'll actually invest this person into my family. You follow the distinction here? You look at that and say, oh, Lord, that's, uh, that's pretty tough. He says, yeah, 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 right. You can't do any of these things apart from my Holy Spirit working in you and enabling you, but this is what I want you to see. And then he, if that wasn't enough, he says, and I also want you to be a place where all of you have a tender heart. Sojourner exile churches are places where people are called upon to show tender hearts to one another. I'm not even going to try to... Try to share with you what the Greek word is here. But literally what the Greek word means is this, to be moved within the intestines. If you break down this compound word, to be moved within your intestines. <laughs> it's a colorful word in the Greek language, and they used it purposely. Uh, what they mean is you discover a what we'll call a gut-level compassion. 
you, you're moved at the gut level, and therefore you can't ignore it. I mean, it, it penetrates to the intestines of the person. I like the way the Greeks develop these words, under God's superintendence, of course, but, you know, like, you ever had that sort of gut level thing? Touched and moved by pity so deep inside of you, you can't ignore it. That's what tender heart is. That's what a tender heart is. It differs from sympathy, so God's not being redundant here, because this particular Greek word means that we're not only touched, but we're moved to action. And so that you can't have this moved within the intestines without allowing what's in the intestines to move. Right? That's, that it, it, that's the reason they, this word was developed. You're moved to the, you push, you've got to do it, you've got to move forward. You can't ignore it. God wants the church to be a place where we both sense and act on the hurts and needs of other people. Makes it a problem if you're in a church that doesn't share any needs. I mean, that, that's pretty tough then. How do, how do you do that? Or, even if needs are shared but you don't really know the people, how do you, how do you, what do you do about it? You know, it's, there's got to be the relational thing. The church is intended by God to be a place where hearts are not calloused to other people. Now, why this is part of the head-scratching thing for the world, because the world, and I put this before you, no matter what rhetoric they add to different things, if you look at the world's organizations in all contexts, they are places where the world works hard to basically be calloused and indifferent so that they can get the impression that they're doing something without actually having to, in, having to do it. The world works hard to wall off any awareness of pain that is so deep that you feel like I don't have any any choice but to respond to it. You know, they don't want that sort of situation arising. So now we'll we'll frame it in different ways so that we're not ignoring in the sense that we don't pretend like it didn't exist, but we frame it in such a way that there's nothing concrete you can do about it. So then you just sort of feel, oh, isn't that too bad? And then you don't do anything. Church isn't supposed to be that sort of place. You know, it's like. God says, I want, your, I want your gut moved. I want, I want it impossible for you to go on unaffected and unacting in the face of something you've learned. So you've got to choose to get close enough to people to sense their hurts and to know something about them. All right, finally, and then I'm moving to this because I want to at least get through the verse. All right, then verse 8 says, finally, I want you to have a humble mind. Sojourner exile churches are places where we show a humble mind. The word translated humble mind in the ESV is actually a combined word in the Greek language. It's a, the first part of the word refers to humility, and the second part, phren, refers to inner logic, inner thinking. The combined together, what it means is that someone in their thinking inside has a modest opinion of themselves. A modest opinion of themselves. And then somebody says, oh, well, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a modest opinion of myself? Basically, it means not to see yourself as more important than other people. That humble-mindedness says people or other people are important, too. Um, in Philippians, he says, uh, people look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. That's, that's what that's about. Uh, not seeing yourself. You can't have koinonia, body life, without that. Uh, this humble-mindedness 
By the way, we find the same word used. Uh, It is reflected in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, is the way the ESV translates that. But it's the same Greek word as the idea of of this modest understanding. And of all people to have that, the Lord Jesus, I mean, he, he... But how could he have that? Because Philippians 2 tells us, beginning in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, rather than being served, remember? A servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, that's what it's all about. He says, okay, I want Christ fleshed out in you guys in, this, in the context of whatever this thing is that you're calling a church, to the point that it is evident that you people have a modest opinion of yourselves as individuals, so that there's room for somebody else in your thinking, so there's room for caring and acting on the needs of others. Because if it isn't there, body life will be undercut in different ways. If we don't have this particular humble opinion of ourselves, modest opinion of ourselves, we'll want to be served rather than serve. I mean, it's just inevitable. We'll want served rather than serve. I get a kick out of situations that research that's done on, on people seeking places and it's like what do you seek it's like a smorgasbord it's not, I want this I want this I want this I want this well, what do you want to do <laughs> it's more than what you get it's what you get I mean, there's got to be that dimension to it you won't do it our pride if, if in fact we think we don't really have a modest opinion of ourselves people pick that up and one of the things that that does is it kind of pushes people away how many of you want to get near somebody that's all consumed in themselves I mean isn't it what goes on in you? Say, well, I'm going to limit connection with that person. Most importantly, is relationship to body life, and I'll end with this. If we don't have this modest opinion of ourselves, we will tend to become too self-sufficient. We will refuse to face life with other people truly and in a real sense because our pride will make us have the feeling that we don't need to be interdependent with other people. We're sufficient in ourselves. What undercuts body life in koinonia? Lots of things, but I believe this is the biggest thing within the redeemed. They are unbiblical in their view of themselves. Because they succumb to the prideful feeling that I can go it alone. I I can be, I don't need to be interdependent with other people. I don't really need other people. God says, I want you to need each other. This church is going to be a family. This is what I want you to do. You say, well, God, that makes me feel awful guilty. So what else is new? When do you read the Word of God that doesn't penetrate to the guilt level? Say, well, okay. Yeah, isn't it wonderful that we can confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that we can move forward. You know, we don't have to do penitential activity. It's like, well, I feel guilty about this. He's okay, next year I want you to beat up on yourself. That's not how God deals with it, you see. He just wants us to come to our senses. We say, okay, 
For whatever reason, I was where I was. That's not where you wanted me. Now I'm going to be where you want me with your grace and enablement. Let's move on. Today's the start of a new day. So, how did you do and how do we do on these five marks of a church family? Father, thank you for a chance to be together in this day. To be with brothers and sisters in Christ. To raise our voices together in singing and praise. To pray together too hear your word. We're so thankful for the privilege that is ours, not because any of us deserve it, but because of what Christ has done to be redeemed in your family, your adopted children. Dismiss us with your blessing, Lord. Guide and direct us in this week ahead. We put ourselves in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.